Chapter 52 of The Deluge, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Gauntz. The Deluge, Volume 2 by Henrik Sienkiewicz. Translated by Jeremiah Curtin. Chapter 52. Olenka and Anusia, having freed themselves from Taurogi under the protection of Brown, came successfully to the sword-bearer's party, which at that time was near Olsha, therefore not very far from Taurogi. The old noble, when he saw them both in good health, would not believe his eyes at first. Then he fell to weeping from delight, and finally came to such military enthusiasm that for him danger existed no longer. Let not only Bugislav appear, but the king of Sweden himself, with all his power, Pan Bilovich was ready to defend his maidens against every enemy. I will fall, said he, before a hair shall drop from your heads. I am no longer the man whom you knew in Taurogi, and I think the Swedes will long remember Girlikol, Yezvoynia, and those beatings which I gave them at Rosenia itself. It is true that the traitor Sakovich attacked us unawares and routed us, but you see several hundred sabres on service. Pan Bilovich did not exaggerate greatly for in truth it was difficult to recognize in him the former prisoner of Taurogi fallen in courage. He had another mind now. His energy had revived in the field on his horse. He found himself in his element, and being a good soldier, he had really handled the Swedes several times roughly. And since he had great authority in the neighborhood, the nobles and common people flocked to him willingly and even from some remote districts Abilovich brought him now between ten and twenty horsemen, now some tens of horsemen. Pan Tomasz's party was composed of three hundred peasant infantry and about five hundred horsemen. It was rare that any man in the infantry had a gun. The greater number were armed with scythes and forks. The cavalry was a collection of the wealthier nobles, who betook themselves to the forest with their attendants, and of the poorer nobles from villages. Their arms were better than those of the infantry, but greatly varied. Hop-poles served as lances for many. Some carried rich family weapons, but frequently of a past age. The horses of various breeds and quality were not fitted for one rank. With such troops, the sword-bearer could block the road to Swedish patrols. He might cut off even detachments of cavalry. He might clear forests and villages of plunderers, whose numerous bands, composed of Swedish fugitives, Prussian and local ruffians, were busied with robbery. But he could not attack any town. The Swedes had grown wiser. Immediately after the outbreak of the rebellion, those who were scattered in quarters in the villages were cut down through Jemud and Lithuania. But now those who had survived remained mostly in fortified towns, which they left only for short expeditions. Therefore the fields, forests, hamlets, and smaller towns were in Polish hands, but the larger towns were held by Swedes, and there was no power to dislodge them. The sword-bearer's party was one of the best. Others could effect still less than he. On the boundary of Livonia, the insurgents had grown so bold, it is true, that they besieged Birgi twice, and at the second attack it was forced to surrender. But that temporary preponderance came from this, that Pontus de Ligardi had assembled to the defense of Riga against the forces of the Tsar all the troops from the neighboring districts of Livonia. His brilliant victories, rarely equaled in history, caused the belief, however, that war in the quarter would soon be at an end, and that he would bring to Jmud new Swedish troops intoxicated with triumphs. 
Still, there was safety enough in the forests at that time, and numerous parties of insurgents capable of undertaking little alone might still be certain that the enemy would not seek them in deep wilderness. Therefore, Pan Bilovich rejected the thought of hiding in Bialove, for the road to it was very long, and on the way were many considerable places with large garrisons. The Lord God has given a dry autumn, he said to the maidens. Therefore, it is easier to live sub-Jove in the open air. I will have a regular tent made for you. I will find a woman to wait on you, and you will stay in the camp. In these times there is no safer refuge than the forest. My bill of viche is burned to the ground. Country houses are infested by ravagers and sometimes even by Swedish parties. Where could you incline your heads more safely than with me, who have several hundred sabres at my command? Rains will come later, then some cabin will be found for you in the forest. This idea pleased Panna Anusia greatly, for in the party were many young Bilovishes, polite cavaliers, and besides it was said continually that Pan Babinich was marching in that direction. Anusia hoped that when he came he would drive out the Swedes in a twinkle, and then then would be what God would give. Olenka judged also that it was safest with the party, but she wished to retreat far from Tarogi, fearing the pursuit of Sakovich. Let us go to Vodokti, said she. There we shall be among our own people. Although it is burned, Mitruni and all the neighboring villages are there. It is impossible that the whole country is turned into a desert. Lauda will defend us in case of danger. But all the Lauda men have gone with Valdiovsky, said Yurbilovich in opposition. The old men and the youths have remained, and even the women there are able to defend in case of need. Besides, forests are greater there than here. The Domasheviches, the hunters, or the smoky Gostcheviches will take us to Rogovsk, where no enemy will find us. And when I have secured the camp and you, I will attack the Swedes, and cut to pieces those who dare to touch the rim of the wilderness, said Pan Bilovich. This is an excellent idea. We have nothing to do here. It is possible to render greater service. Who knows whether the sword-bearer did not seize that idea of Olenka so quickly, because he too in his soul was somewhat afraid of Sakovich, who, brought to despair, might be terrible. The advice, however, was wise in itself, therefore it pleased all immediately. The sword-bearer sent out infantry that very day under command of Yurbilovich, so as to push forward by the forest in the direction of Krakenov. But he went forward himself with the cavalry two days later, obtaining in advance reliable intelligence as to whether there had not gone out from Kiedani or Rosenyi, between which he had to march, some considerable bodies of Swedish troops. Pan Bilovich marched slowly and carefully. The ladies travelled in peasants' wagons, and sometimes on ponies which the sword-bearer had provided. Anusia, who had received as a gift from Yurbilovich a light sabre, hung it bravely at her side, and in a cap placed jauntily on her head brought up the squadron like some captain. The march amused her, the sabres glittering in the sun and the fires disposed around at night. Young officers and soldiers were greatly pleased with the lady, and she shot her eyes around in every direction on the march. She let her tresses fall so as to braid them three times daily over the banks of bright brooks which for her took the place of a mirror. She said often that she wished to see a battle so as to give an example of bravery, but in very truth she did not want a battle at all. She wanted only to subdue the hearts of all the young warriors. In fact, she did subdue an unreckoned number of them. 
Olenka, too, revived again, as it were, after leaving Tarogi. There the uncertainty of her future and continual fear were killing her. Now in the depths of the forest she felt safer. The wholesome air brought back her strength. The sight of soldiers, of weapons, the movement and bustle of camp life acted like balsam on her wearied soul. And the march of troops acted agreeably on her also. Possible dangers did not alarm her in the least, for nightly blood was in her veins. Appearing less frequently before the soldiers, not permitting herself to gallop on a pony in front of the ranks, she attracted fewer glances, but general respect surrounded her. The mustached faces of the soldiers were laughing at the sight of Anusia. Heads were uncovered when Olenka drew near the fires. That was changed later to homage. But it did not pass without this, that some heart beat for her in a youthful breast but eyes did not dare to gaze at her so directly as that brunette of the Ukraine. They advanced through forests and thickets, often sending scouts ahead, and only on the seventh day did they arrive late at night in Lubich, which, lying on the border of the Lauda region, formed as it were the entrance to it. The horses were so tired that in spite of Olenka's opposition it was impossible to go farther. Bilovich, therefore, forbade the lady to find fault, and disposed his party for the halt. He himself with the young ladies occupied the house, for the night was foggy and very cold. By a marvellous chance the house had not been burned. The enemy had spared it, probably through the command of Prince Janusz Radzivill, because it was Kmitas, and though the prince learned later of Pan Andrei's succession, he forgot or had not time to give a new order. The insurgents considered the estate as belonging to the Bilovichs. The ravagers did not dare to plunder near Lauda. Therefore nothing had changed in it. Olenka went under that roof with a terrible feeling of bitterness and pain. She knew every corner there, but almost with each one was bound up some memory of Kamita's betrayal. Before her is the dining hall ornamented with the portraits of the Bilovichs and with skulls of wild beasts of the forest. The skulls cracked with bullets are still on the nails. The portraits slashed with sabres are gazing from the walls, as if wishing to say, Behold, O maiden, behold our granddaughter. It was he who slashed with sacrilegious hand the pictures of our earthly forms, now resting long in their graves. Olenka felt that she could not close an eye in that branded house. It seemed to her that in the dark corners of the rooms were prowling around yet the ghosts of those terrible comrades breathing fire from their nostrils and how quickly that man so loved by her had passed from violence to transgression, from transgression to crimes, from the slashing of portraits to profligacy, to the burning of Yupita and Volmontovici, to carrying her off from Vidocti, further to the service of Radzivill, to treason, crowned with the promise of raising his hand against the king, against the father of the whole commonwealth. The night went on swiftly, but sleep did not seize the lids of unhappy Olenka. All the wounds of her soul were reopened and began to burn painfully. Shame again was scorching her cheeks. Her eyes dropped no tears in that time, but immeasurable grief surrounded her heart, because it could not find place within that poor heart. Grief for what? For what might have been if he had been other, if with his bad habits, wildness, and violence he had even an honest heart, if finally he had even a measure in his crimes, if there existed some boundary over which he was incapable of passing, and her heart would have forgiven so much. 
Anusia saw the suffering of her companion and understood the cause, for the old sword-bearer had detailed the whole history to her previously. Since she had a kind heart, she came up to Panna Bilevich, and throwing her arms around her neck, said, Olenka, you are writhing from pain in this house. Olenka at first did not wish to speak, then her whole body trembled like an aspen leaf, and at last a terrible despairing cry burst from her bosom. Seizing Anusia's hand convulsively, she rested her bright head on that maiden's shoulder. Sobbing now tore her as a whirlwind tears a thicket. Anusia had to wait long before it passed. At last she whispered when Olenka was pacified somewhat, Let us pray for him. Olenka covered her eyes with both hands. I cannot, said she, with an effort. After a while, gathering back feverishly the hair which had fallen on her forehead, she began to speak with a gasping voice. You see, I cannot. You are happy. Your babinich is honorable, famous before God and the country. You are happy. I am not free even to pray. Here everywhere is the blood of people, and here are burned ruins. If at least he had not betrayed the country, if he had not undertaken to sell the king. I had forgiven everything before in Kaidani, for I thought, for I loved him with my whole heart. But now I cannot. Oh, merciful God, I cannot. I could wish not to live myself, and that he were not living. It is permitted to pray for every soul, said Anusia, for God is more merciful than men, and knows reasons which often men do not know. When she had said this, Anusia kneeled down to pray, and Olenka threw herself on the floor in the form of a cross, and lay thus till daybreak. Next morning the news thundered through the neighborhood that Pan Bilevich was in Lauda. At that news all who were living came forth with greeting. Therefore out of the neighboring forests issued decrepit old men and women with small children. For two years no one had sowed any seed, no one had plowed any land. The villages were partly burned and were deserted. The people lived in the forests. Men in the vigor of life had gone with Volodyovsky or to various parties. Only youths watched and guarded the remnant of cattle, and guarded well, but under cover of the wilderness. They greeted the sword-bearer then as a savior, with a great cry of joy. For to those simple people it seemed that if the sword-bearer had come and the lady was returning to the ancient nest, there must be an end to war and disasters. In fact, they began at once to return to the villages, and to drive out the half-wild cattle from the deepest forest enclosures. The Swedes, it is true, were not far away, defended by entrenchments in Ponyevye. But in presence of Bilevich's forces and other neighboring parties which might be summoned in case of need, less attention was paid to them. Pan Tomash even intended to attack Ponyevye so as to clear out the whole district. But he was waiting for more men to rally to his banner, and waiting especially till guns were brought to his infantry. These guns the Domasheviches had secreted in considerable number in the forest. Meanwhile he examined the neighborhood, passing from village to village. But that was a gloomy review at Vidokti. The mansion was burned and half the village, Mitruni in like the manor. Volmontovici of the Buttrams, which Kamita had burned in his time and which had been rebuilt after the fire, by a marvelous chance was untouched. But Dojrakani and Mosgi of the Domasheviches was burned to the ground. Patsunelli was half-consumed, and Morezi altogether. 
Goshchuni experienced the harshest fate, for half the people were cut to pieces, and all the men to boys of a few years had their hands cut off by command of Colonel Rossa. So terribly war had trampled those neighborhoods, such were the results of the treason of Yanush Radzivill. But before Bilovich had finished his review and stationed his infantry, fresh tidings came, at once joyful and terrible, which rang with thousandfold echo from cottage to cottage. Yurik Bilovich, who had gone with a few tens of horses on a reconnaissance to Ponievi, and had seized some Swedes, was the first to learn of the battle at Pratsky. Then every report brought more details, so wondrous that they resembled a fable. Pan Gosievsky, it was said, had routed Count Waldeck, Israel, and Prince Boguslav. The army was cut to pieces, the leaders in captivity. All Prussia was blazing in one conflagration. A few weeks later the mouths of men began to repeat one terrible name, the name of Babinich. Babinich, said they, was the main cause of the victory at Protsky. Babinich cut down with his own hand and captured Prince Boguslav. The next news was, Babinich is burning electoral Prussia, is advancing like death toward Jmud, slaying, leaving behind only earth and sky. Then came the end. Babinich has burned Taurogi. Sakovich has fled before him and is hiding in forests. The last event had happened too near to remain long in doubt. In fact, the news was verified perfectly. Anusia, during the whole time that news was arriving, lived as if dazed. She laughed and wept in turn, stamped her feet when no one believed, and repeated to everyone whether that one would listen or not. I know Pandabinich. He brought me from Zamosht to Panzafea. He is the greatest warrior in the world. I do not know whether Pan Sharnyetsky is his equal. He is the man who, serving under Safeya, crushed Bugoslav utterly in the first campaign. He, I am sure that it is no other, conquered him at Protsky. Yes, he can finish Sakovich and ten like Sakovich. He will sweep out the Swedes in a month from all Jmud. In fact, her assurances began to be justified speedily. There was not the least doubt that the terrible warrior called Babinich had moved forward from Taurogi toward the northern country. At Coltigny he defeated Colonel Balden and cut his troops to pieces. At Varney he scattered the Swedish infantry, which retreated before him at Telshi. At Telshi he won a greater victory over two colonels, Norman and Hudenskold, in which the latter fell, and Norman with the survivors did not halt till he reached Zagory, on the very boundary of Jmud. From Telshi Babinich marched to Kershani, driving before him smaller divisions of Swedes, who took refuge in haste with the more important garrisons. From Taurogi and Polongi to Birji and Vilkomir the name of the victor was ringing. They told of the cruelties which he permitted himself against the Swedes. It was said that his forces, composed at first of a small shambul of Tartars and little squads of volunteers, increased day after day. For all who were living rushed to him, all parties joined him, but he bound them in bonds of iron and led them against the enemy. Minds were so occupied by his victories that tidings of the defeat which Pan Gosievsky had sustained from Steinbach at Filipovo passed almost without an echo. Babinich was nearer, and with Babinich they were more occupied. Anusia implored Bilovich daily to advance and join the great warrior. Olenka supported her. 
all the officers and nobles urged, excited by curiosity alone. But to join the warrior was not easy. First, Babinich was in another district. Second, he often disappeared, and was not heard of for weeks, and then appeared again with news of a new victory. Third, all the Swedish soldiers and garrisons protecting themselves from him had stopped the road with large forces. Finally, beyond Rossani, a considerable body of troops had appeared under Sakovich, of whom tidings were brought saying that he was destroying everything before him and torturing people terribly while questioning them concerning Bilovich's party. The sword-bearer not only could not march to Babinich, but he feared that it would soon be too narrow for him near Lauda. Not knowing himself what to begin, he confided to Yurik Bilovich that he intended to withdraw to the forest of Rogovsk in the east. Yurik immediately gave this information to Anusia, and she went straight to the sword-bearer. "'Dearest uncle,' said she, for she always called him uncle when she wanted to gain something from him, "'I hear that we have to flee.' Is it not a shame for so celebrated a warrior to flee at the mere report of an enemy? Your ladyship must thrust your three coppers into everything, said the anxious sword-bearer. This is not your affair. Very well, then, retreat, but I will stay here. So that Sakovich will catch you, you'll see. Sakovich will not catch me, for Pan Babinich will defend me. Especially when he knows where you are. I have said already that we are unable to go to him. But he can come to us. I am his acquaintance. If I could only send a letter to him, I am certain he would come here, after he had beaten Sakovich. He loved me a little, and he would come to rescue me. But who will undertake to carry a letter? It can be sent through the first peasant that comes. It will do no harm. It will do no harm. In no case will it do harm. Olenka has quick wit, but neither are you without it. Even if we had to retreat to the woods this moment before superior force, it would still be well to have Babinich come to these parts, for we can then join him more easily. Try. Messengers will be found, and trusty men. The delighted Anusia began to try so well that same day she found two messengers, and not peasants, for one was Yurik Bilovich, the other Brown. Each was to take a letter of the same contents as that which the other carried, so that if one failed, the other might deliver the missive to Babinich. With the letter itself, Anusia had more trouble, but at last she wrote it in the following words. In the last extremity I write to you. If you remember me, though I doubt if you do, come to rescue me. By the kindness which you showed me on the road from Zamosht, I dare to hope that you will not leave me in misfortune. I am in the party of Pan Bilovich, the sword-bearer of Rossani, who gave me refuge because I brought his relative Panna Bilovich out of captivity in Taurogi. And him and us both the enemy, namely the Swedes, have surrounded on every side, and a certain Pan Sakovich, before whose sinful importunities I had to flee and seek safety in the camp. I know that you did not love me, though God sees that I did you no harm. I wished you well and shall wish you well from my whole heart. But though you do not love, rescue a poor orphan from the savage hand of the enemy. God will reward you for it a hundredfold, and I will pray for you, whom today I call only my good protector, but hereafter my savior. When the messengers were leaving the camp, Anusia, considering to what dangers they were exposed, was alarmed and at last wished to stop them. 
Even with tears in her eyes she began to implore the sword-bearer not to permit them to go, for peasants might carry the letters, and it would be easier for the peasants to deliver them. But Brown and Yurik Bilovich were so stubborn that no remonstrance could avail. One wished to surpass the other in readiness to serve, but neither foresaw what was awaiting him. A week later Brown fell into the hands of Sakovich, who gave command to flay him, but poor Yorick was shot beyond Ponievyi while fleeing before a Swedish party. Both letters fell into the hands of the enemy. End of chapter 52